uh, I say it was overdetermined that I went into psychiatry because it was crucial that I could understand what had happened to us. We were the first travelers who crossed the border into Turkmenistan. She had something very aggressive and violent, but you felt that, you felt that pressure, that, that, that violence in her. Uh, Hungary was sold by Churchill. Hungary was sold by Churchill to the Russians. That is the craziest thing I've ever did and the craziest story. And I'm now proud of that, that I had the, the courage to overstep everything I had learned. I'd like to introduce Regina Kessler, doctor, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and one of the loveliest, sharpest ladies I've ever met. Regina, I want to thank you for your willingness to sit down with me and share your life story and professional insights with transparency. If you enjoy it, I encourage you to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on or just simply tell a friend. It really helps to get the podcast some recognition. Without further ado, my conversation with Regina Kessler. What do you remember about your childhood growing up in Switzerland? Uh, we, I, yeah, I was born in Zurich, but uh, we moved to Emmenbrücke, that's near Luzern. Um, before I was two. Do you mind if I ask what year you were born? Uh, 43. For context? Okay. Okay. In the middle of the uh, Second World War. Uh, was that, now I know Switzerland was somewhat neut was neutral for the most part. Was there stress or pressure at that time for families in Switzerland? I can tell you that uh, first thing, we had rations also. Uh, which were pretty, uh, quite, I mean, it was enough, but everybody had to plant uh, potatoes and salad and so on in the, in the backyard. That was from, and even in the, in the parks in Zurich, for example, they planted uh, potatoes and things. So even though Switzerland was neutral, there was still... Um, knock on we had effects. shortage. We had we had a lot of shortage of uh, of uh, what you use daily. Because trade would have been um, massively. There was, would have been no trade. No, no uh, I, I, I think yeah. <laughs> For from 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 the big players, perhaps you know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, yeah, and. The Americans were not very good in geography because they bombarded, uh, they let fall some bombs on Zurich and on Schaffhus. They expected it to be what access powered. They, they thought they were over Germany and they bombarded <laughs> parts of Zurich. Wow. And I think it comes from there that I, as a child, I was absolutely terrified when I heard uh, fighter planes. And we heard often fighter planes. I mean, Switzerland is so small. Uh, the others crossed all the time over Switzerland, you know. And, and especially the Americans. 
I mean, they they were not very strong in geography, and uh, I I was terrified when I heard the fighter planes. Even when I, even when I was seven or eight, I still, still. must have remembered that. Wow. And uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah, that was it. And then uh, I, I remember that uh, we lived in Emmenbrücke from. I think forty-four to nineteen fifty. Luzern is the the most beautiful tourist town for now. The Japanese and the Chinese and the Americans and everybody wants to see Luzern because it's in central Switzerland. It is yeah. In the meantime, it it, it might be fairly big, and it was then. It had then grand hotels, you know. It was the tourist destination from the beginning of the century. Um, when I finished high school, I went to visit my brother who was living in France at the moment. He was living in Chamonix. Yeah. French Alps. And I remember getting off the plane. The first thing I felt was the cold. But then when I arrived in Chamonix, I got out the little bus and I, I was overwhelmed by the the alps there overwhelmed by the mountains and we could see mont blanc uh, is that sort of the same sort of terrain uh so luzerne is at the end of uh of the lake in central switzerland which has a very distinct shape uh and is surrounded by high mountains and it's absolutely beautiful. The highest is the Pilatus, Mount Pilatus, which has one of the uh, first cable cars, as far as I know. And everybody goes to Pilatus, and it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a beautiful mountain. It's uh, it's very distinct. And then Birkenstock. Uh, and what not. It's just, it's surrounded by high mountains. Yes. Yeah. Um, so your childhood is in this town. You grew up and your father's an engineer, your mother's a, a teacher, and uh, you have educators, you're surrounded with books and knowledge. Um, when we first spoke, you mentioned that you spent most of your career in the medical field. Well, where did it start? Oh, yeah, I went over when I was 13. I wanted to study archaeology. That's why in, uh, in high school, I went to the, to the class who learned not only Latin, but also ancient Greek. Because my father was he had a big influence on me because he was interested in everything and he was fascinated by the old cultures of babylon and sumer and egypt yes 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 and so uh, of course he sent when he when he worked in paris he sent us postcards from the louvre from the from 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 egypt uh, uh, things they the had found of in the Hammurabi. Oh God! And the, yeah, yeah, Hammurabi, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and uh, 
and the Sumer and Babylon and all these cultures. He was absolutely fascinated mm. by that. So, so that was when I was 13. Oh, I wish I could speak with your father. I, w- I wish there was an opportunity. That, <laughs> that ancient history, that like as far back as with the, the Sumerians and the Akkadians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, yep. I wish we had more material, more sources, more... Uh, that part of history fascinates me the most, just like your father. Uh, then you should perhaps uh, read the books from Thor Heyerdahl. How do I how do I spell that? Oh come on, sorry. No, that's okay. I'm going to write this down and right the, the, now before I forget. You have certainly. I mean, he was. I think he was the last, the last big adventurer. <laughs> of the 20th century. So, um, what nationality is this man? Uh, I think he's Norwegian. He, yeah, it's Thor. <laughs> it, it, it's the first name. Thor Heyerdahl. Yeah. Uh, he's Norwegian. He went with a crew from 10 different nations. Isn't that such a Viking thing to do? Build a boat and go and explore? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he, he sailed on a balsa raft from South America to the Easter Islands, uh, no, to the, to the Tuamotu Islands, Contiki. Wow. Uh, he, he, was, he was in his, in, in his uh, he was uh, just as fascinated as you are about ancient history. And he was, uh, yeah, he, he, he did crazy things. Um, okay, so no, yeah. <laughs> your education at 13 years old, <laughs> interest so in history. That was that. that was and my then uh, it was zoology next. And then I was quite uh, influenced by, that was the time I read about Albert Schweitzer. So Why do I know that now? Albert Schweitzer. Yeah. Well, he had, uh, he was from uh, France, but uh, from the German-speaking part, uh, Alsace, Alsace, uh, Strasbourg, Colmar, from there. He was, uh, he had uh, studied theology. He was a, uh, very good musician, played the uh, org, organ, and he was a doctor. And he wanted, and he he founded the the hospital in Lambarene in the jungle. In Lambarene, I think it must have been Be- uh, Belgian Congo then. Okay. Yeah. And. Um, there were a lot of charities for that hospital, and he wrote also uh, he wrote a book about that. And uh, there was a lot. It was very well known when I was a kid. Is this the nineteenth century? No, 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 no. It was uh, when I. It existed. I I can't tell you. It was the first half of the twentieth century, and okay. Lambarene was founded, okay. and and. Uh, he was, An inspiration to you. He, uh, he was, yeah. And uh, then I thought, yes, I will become a doctor and I will go to Lambarene. <laughs> <laughs> and then 
I went through, uh, through uh, high school and I ended up with, uh, with just, I just made it because I was, I was lazy. That is, I was not lazy, but I was not interested in physics and maths. Yes. I was good in French, in chemistry and in arts. And at the same time, I mean, I always played an instrument and I was very good at it. Which instruments? Uh, then it was the silver flute. The silver flute. Yeah. Is that the one I'm thinking of? Clairefleur. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I played with the thought to perhaps study music, but uh, I was not confident enough. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so when I stopped after the first year of medicine, I stopped with the flute because I didn't have time anymore. And then my teacher told to my mom, not to me, not to my mom, oh, that's a shame. She is so, she's so gifted. But if she would have said that to me, I perhaps I would have gone for music. But that was a time, you know, uh, it was, and it was just also my mom's line of education. Don't, uh, don't praise your, your kids too much because life is anyway hard. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah okay. The old school mentality. Yeah. Yes. And so, uh, so I stayed with medicine and I'm fine with it. I mean, uh, I'm, I was, I, I have become a good doctor. So your first, say. so you became a, a general practitioner? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, how many years were you in that field? Um, until I was 45. So a couple of decades. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you transitioned. And then I, yeah, I mean, and in the meantime, life had taken its toll on our family. And I changed that ease. I went to see a psychotherapist, not for me, but for my son. Okay. For the one who is in Switzerland. Uh and but because i knew i knew he he it was he was not right he was he had been difficult from from a very early age and and the, the psychotherapist she was psychoanalytic and um, we talked and she said look when he if he is not motivated he doesn't so but why don't you why why don't you become a psychotherapist she suggested she, this to you yeah because i mean i was always interested in in i made always a lot of time for my patients and i was always interested in the background family background whatever there was and um, and sometimes I thought, I 
have to send that person to a psychotherapist. But nobody wanted to go because they trusted me. And I was not, I didn't feel, I felt sometimes like a fraud because I hadn't learned that, you know. And, uh, and so when this woman asked me, why the, the, uh, didn't, uh, did you ever think, think of, uh, uh, of becoming a psychotherapist? I said, yeah. And then I told her, yeah, I mean, I can't send people away because they, they, yeah, they, they just stick with me. They can trust you. They trust me. Yes. And uh, I, I, obviously, I bring something uh, that helps. Makes me feel comfortable. But I, I'm, I don't know why. And I don't know what I'm doing. Do you know now? I know what I'm doing. I know very well what I'm doing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what is it that made them feel comfortable then that made you trust you? I think because, in the first place, because I just was genuinely interested. And people can sense it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, they, they feel if you are, if you just do your job, yeah. Or if you stare at the screen like uh, a lot of young doctors in this country do, they don't even look you in the, f in, in the eyes. It's impersonal. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I was always genuinely interested and I was always also interested in the, in their background because I knew, I, I just knew <laughs> because I guess it was, it, my education made a big, uh, has a big part in it. That, uh, that humanistic element in my education, I knew that your background, your family, where you come from, the culture where you come from, it's important. And it's important how you feel and what it's also important what, how you deal with, with illnesses. It is just, and so I, I, I was always, and what I didn't know, what a, a young cousin told me once, she worked for me uh, as a nurse in the practice. And when I last time was in Switzerland, I saw her and then she told me, you know what? You never gave up. You never gave up. When, when it was difficult, when, when, uh, when uh, also with difficult people, you never gave up. You always were completely 100% there. And a lot of people uh, wouldn't have experienced that, especially if they were people giving up on them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think that was it. And so when uh, when the, my, uh, my, uh, when the, that uh, psychoanalyst asked me, I thought, I mean, in the meantime, my husband had become mentally ill and was in, uh, had been almost, had been nine months in a psychiatric hospital and I never knew if he would. This uh, is your husband. My husband was mentally ill 
and then later my son became mentally ill, my elder son. And so, and then it was like, uh, I say, it was over-determined that I went into psychiatry because I, it was crucial that I could understand what had happened to us, you know. Is it okay if I ask what triggered the mental illness? That is a story. <laughs> that All is a new story. Itself. So, and here I have to go back to that uh, famous Hungarian revolution. In Because you told me at the phone last week what was, what I should think about which were the defining moments. And I would say the first defining moment in my life, I would call that, was the Hungarian Revolution. I was 13. I was in, uh, in high school, the first year high school. And the Hungarian Revolution was a revolution from young people, from students, or university students, and uh, and and the uh, high schoolers and young workers, and it was a revolution against communism. Because hung Hungary was a communist country, and was occupied by Russia by Soviets. And uh, between Switzerland and Hungary, there is only Austria. So it was close. It hit home. And that was actually the first time we, we uh, Swiss middle-class kids were confronted with politics. You know, nowadays, you see it all the time at the TV, the youngest children hear about the civil wars and this and that and in the whole world. Then... 13-year-olds were not confronted uh, with politics and with the things like that. And that was for me, and not only for me, I think for my generation, it was the big awakening. Switzerland wasn't communist. No. So what, how did, why did the Hungarian revolution impact you and the young people in Switzerland? Because these young people who were after three weeks uh, killed, executed uh, after mock trials, when they found a weapon, when the Soviets found a weapon, they came after three weeks, they came with tanks from Soviet Union and walked all flat. And these young people were our, our they, they were us, they were like us, they were young they were they were students they wanted to live free and we in switzerland we knew uh, i mean we knew we are a free country and hey how could how could the soviet union do that to them we felt so close to them you can't imagine that we we really woke up to 
something something we we nobody had ever thought about it they were us they were our friends they were our they were so close so the young people saw the injustices happening to the hungarians and the only thing that separated you is where you were born if you were born in hungary this would be happening to you yeah, and yeah. that triggered a response out of yeah, the young yeah and i think that was maybe in uh, it was certainly the case in germany too it was france i don't know they are a, a bit further away you know but i mean for us it was just i i remember that there were a group of students in university they bought a truck they filled it with everything that, that could help included weapons i heard i'm not sure and they drove to hungary i don't know if they arrived if <laughs> they came in but from your university from from the university of zurich yeah i mean that was the climate so for me these people were heroes and switzerland then in uh, the following january february switzerland took 30000 hungarian refugees in which would have even more um motivated the young people because they would see yeah. the stories and see yeah. the people yeah. and yeah. hear and yeah. touch and and we had also we had a, a an older refugee in the village a, a singer a very nice beautiful man so he and he was he was a real hungarian the hungarians are very sentimental people you know like yeah they they overflow with feelings and uh, for me these young people were heroes and then in during at the end of my medical studies suddenly one day a hungarian doctor came to us to for all the repetitions he was 10 years older than i was he had been a refugee he had finished his studies in switzerland he had uh, he made the final exam like the swiss and 10 years later he wanted to have his own practice before he was a assistant doctor in hospitals and they then they told him oh look the law has changed in between you have to to do the final exam again so they treated the refugees like that and for me he was he was the one he was the, he was the, the he was all what i dreamt of he was the hero he was a bit depressed but yeah he was the hero and it uh, a year later we were married i just put it together the last 30 seconds your surname is hungarian you told me earlier yes so this was your husband yes. a hungarian refugee yes doctor. yes yes again <laughs> but he uh, yeah i mean 
I know now. I understood that only later that he was then already, he, I mean, he was divorced. He had that story. The Hungarians had lost uh, twice in a row everything. Uh, the first time in the First World War. And then, uh, I mean, his family uh, was, uh, they were big landowners. And they, uh, at the Balaton, Lake Balaton, and uh, breeding racehorses and so on, and blah, and the yacht on the Balaton and so on. But then came Second World War and they lost again everything. And uh, they survived, sort of, because his uh, grandma was a very tough woman. <laughs> and then he... Uh, he, he, of course, he took part in the revolution, like uh, a lot of young people who came from families with uh, similar experiences, you know. Nobody liked the Russians. Even though the Russians were fighting the Germans in the Second World War, they became, Hungary became a communist nation afterwards. Uh, uh, Hungary was sold by Churchill. Hungary was sold by Churchill to the Russians. Uh, and Hungary was uh, a lot, a big part of Hungarians were very fascist. I mean, yeah, the Hungarian Jews were spared until uh, autumn 1944. And then the big raffle and everybody was deported. That was the story. The Hungarians were, especially in the big cities like Budapest, uh, the Hungarians were fascist, uh, like like the almost like the Germans. That was the story. Um, and so it really impacted them when Soviet Russia took over. And then came the Soviets. Mm. Yeah, and then. Uh, everybody who had a house lost that house. Everybody who had who had a property uh, was uh, it, it was taken from everybody. Came the states came Soviet land, Soviet yeah, property, yeah, Soviet yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, what part did your husband have in the revolution? In he he had to collect foodstuff in the farms around the capital uh, for, for, the, for the revolutionaries because, I mean, every business was closed, was nailed shut, nothing happened, no trade and nothing. So uh, they, they went uh, out in the countryside and collected food for the, for, for the revolutionaries in Budapest because he was then in Budapest. And this revolution happened in the 50s? It began the, th the 23rd of October, 56, and lasted three weeks. So about 11 years, 10, 11 years after the end of World War II, and it only lasted three weeks. Lasted three weeks, and then the Russians came with tanks. And I mean, the young out. people had 
yeah, they had some weapons, but not much. Nobody had a weapon. Didn't have uh, and they they yeah. uh, fought against the tanks with Molotov cocktails. Yeah. yeah. And I can remember to this day the story of Ilona Todt. She was a medical student at that. She was found with a pistol. She was uh, sentenced to death in a mock trial from, of five minutes and was publicly hanged by the Soviets. And she was, that was, that was the image we had, you know, we had the photo. That was the image we had and it was us. It was really us and that never went away. And that, that, in, that resulted in me Marrying a Hungarian refugee. <laughs> what a story. Wow. Um, so that mental illness, that breakdown, was an accumulation of the stress and the loss of culture and family and friends. Yes, and then and then the divorce and the, he had a daughter from his first wife. His first wife was Hungarian too. The Hungarians were, uh, I mean, uh, we Swiss were, I guess, also pretty alien to them because especially they were from a higher society, partly, you know. Or then they were workers, but uh, he came from a, from, from a background where they had the ideas, yeah, uh, yeah. So we, we said uh, the... You know, uh, like the last uh, Austrian uh, emperors, and uh, then the the uh, yeah, they just a refined society. Posh, posh, posh. Yes, yes. and breeding racehorses. You know, I mean, yeah. I see. So, okay. uh, he was not like that. He was not. Uh, he had not grown up like that because he was born in thirty-two, and only his first. So he was, he was eight when the when the, when when uh, hung, Hungary uh, entered the war. So it was only his early childhood where he was yeah. around. But then he was in a he was in a convent school. He was in a boarding school from from. I don't know if they were the Marist brothers. They were everywhere or something well, like Mar that. Marist brothers, we have them around here. Yeah, I, yeah I, they, didn't, they, I didn't know they were so widespread. I didn't know they were international. They are like a like a cancer. Uh, sorry. Um, no, um, <laughs> I can't say that because you are Protestant. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can say exactly how you think and feel. Marist brothers. Are they Protestant? I thought they were Catholic. Catholic. Yeah, they're Catholic. And how Catholic they were. Yeah, my, they're very, very the, uh, Hungarian. Hungarian society was Catholic, mainly. Mm. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, and I mean his his mental illness. He he then tried, which I didn't know. He took tranquilizers to to treat himself. And I didn't know that. And he took a lot and he needed more and more. It was then Valium, it was later Librium, it was all those benzodiazepine. Just to um, calm. Uh, to, just, just to 
to, to keep it together somehow. The function. And, uh, but of course, tranquilizers uh, taken long term make you even more depressed. And uh, it, and in the end, he, in the end, he had uh, he had paranoid uh, ideas that everybody wanted him uh, that he he had done wrong and he the police waited to 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 take him in and uh, in the end not in the end and then he when I was when was that which year was that. 76, we were even building a house and the children were two and a half and five and he tried to kill himself the first time. And after that he was nine months in hospital. He tried it again in hospital and uh, after nine months, he could. Uh, he was dismissed from hospital. He was never able to work a hundred percent anymore. And eight years later, he was then. Yeah, it was a story. I I took him, brought him to a, a psycho psychiatrist who knew uh, a lot about uh, tranquilizer um, addict addiction and he 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 saw him two minutes he told me he is an addict for tranquilizers and you have to get the tranquilizers out of his system and then it will that will take the body will need six weeks that but the personality will get to normal after on after six months and we did and we did that and then we had one good year again one good year and then it be, he began again and then it became worse because then he, he got paranoid and he got paranoid against me that I wanted to to shut him away, and I wanted to uh, to get rid of him, and so on. And I he didn't allow me to access our bank account anymore. He didn't allow me to talk to the nurses in the practice, and we, we worked in the same practice. Uh, uh, he didn't allow me to talk to the bookkeeper. Uh, it, was practically impossible for me to to go Function. on, and then I I realized I, I have to we have to separate. I didn't even want to divorce. I just said I can't. We 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 will all be destroyed by him. And uh, but then yeah, then it it ended in a divorce after a year. He was another half year in hospital. Um, and he never, never ever got back to normal. That was, uh, 
he worked later still a bit, but I had I I had to go. I had I opened my own practice, and four years later I went and became a psychiatrist and psychotherapist. That's um, the story. People don't realize, and even if if something, even if if something looks really really bad, you still can, you you still can choose. You have always the choice. You can choose, left or right. Do you want to take the shit from other people, for example, or not? Or say. Um, it's often in abused uh, partnerships. It's never one person alone. It is always two sides. It is the person who abuses. It's often someone who doesn't know better. And it's the other person who accepts instead of thinking what can I do? I'm not a professional victim, you know. So uh, it's uh, even if it's uh, even if it's it's difficult and if it's rough, you have to make decisions, and sometimes you have to make decisions who make you feel guilty. Mm. I mean, when I uh, when I had to separate from my husband, I felt guilty because, and I loved him still. And that's why I never talked about him, about my ex-husband. I always said my husband. And I wouldn't have married anymore because, uh, but it would have been just too, too bad and too dangerous also for the kids to stay together. But, uh, I felt guilty anyway, because he he is he he is a sick man, and I leave him. But if he is paranoid against me, I can't help him. So, what am I doing? And when I when I told my son he had either to go to to his dad or I would send him to a to a place to a to a home for apprentices. Because he he behaved so absolutely badly to me. He went drinking with older uh, when he was sixteen. He went drinking with older uh, friends, so-called friends, and they just filled him up, as we say, you know. And then he had a he had a adverse reaction. He he lost it completely. He climbed on a tree and I don't know exactly what happened then and his friends became they they suddenly were afraid something bad would happen and then they called even the police police came looked at that scene and said yeah that that's 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 not our business he's just drunk and they did nothing, and it was October, it was a cold night, and he was about 10 kilometers on the road from home, and he was only 
he was with the bike. His uh, companions left and left him there. And then uh, sometime, but, uh, early morning at three in the morning, he, he was home. So if he would have had an accident on the road, he could have frozen to death because it was a cold night. And when you have had alcohol, you freeze to death uh, when, it, when it's 10 degrees, you know. Uh, you don't need minus temperatures. And then I told him, I wanted to talk to him. He said, you don't have to tell me anything. I'm working. He was then an apprentice. I'm working. And I, I, I do paid work. And you, you have, you, you come, come on. You don't have to tell me anything. I don't have to listen to you. And then I said, look, okay. I can't tell you anything anymore, but nobody can ask me to sit just and look and watch how you go downhill like that. So I can't just be a bystander. So you go and move in with your dad or you go in a, in a home for apprentices. And I felt, I can tell you, I felt very bad because he was my firstborn. And I I loved him so much and he has an IQ from over 140. But he couldn't use his intelligence for something constructive. And then later, then he was already, he lived, he was homeless, he lived in the street, he was sometimes in, in hospital, sometimes not. And then in a winter night, he came, he came to my door short, shortly after New Year. It was ice and snow and he wanted money. <sighs> what do you do now? I knew that he would buy drugs. And, and I said, look, you can have 10 bucks and you go to, to the salvos to sleep. And he was furious and he left. He didn't want the 10 bucks. He wanted real money for, yeah. And I sent him away in a winter night because I knew he would just make havoc and it wouldn't help him. And I sent him away and I felt so bad. I, I think I never felt so bad in my life. But I knew it wouldn't help him and it would destroy me and maybe also his brother. Yeah. And then he, the next 10 years, he was mainly in uh, psychiatric hospitals. Ten, yeah, years. 10 years. He has a history that thick. Yeah. And he was, uh, the, the last three or four of the, those 10 years, he was in, uh, in the only 
psychiatric hospital in Switzerland who has special ward for uh, people who actually belong in prison because he had uh, he had set fire to a car and a carport that belonged to a doctor who didn't want to reduce his medication. And he had been sentenced in Zurich in court to have to accept treatment and to, yeah, he did other things. He also broke up parking meter to have a bit of cash, you know. And remember, I didn't know of that. I There were years I didn't then hear from him. And once I had, I saw half a page in the big newspaper, Tagesanzeiger, about a, course, uh, a court case. And no names, but I knew it was Thomas. I knew it was him because he complained against treatment, uh, for human rights, you know. And I said, no one of us, of the whole family, was ever in the newspaper. And in and half a page. And he, who is a mentally ill person, but with he he knew exactly he could he could like switch on and off. He could get uh, he could get a half a page in the newspaper as a crazy person with a IQ from a hundred and forty plus. <laughs> but now he's a married man. Now he's married, and he is. I mean, he has. Uh, he, has, he's a, he didn't stop the medication anymore after his wife told him, if you do it again, I leave you. Because uh, every time he got psychotic again, and then he threw all the furniture out the window, and they had nothing. Now he is married, and she loves him. And he loves her. In, in What he can do, he does. And he looks after her. I'm I'm very grateful and happy for both of them because it serves them both. Uh, she is, she found a man who respects women, the first time in her life. And he has someone who stands by him. And where he can, he can do things for her. She's a diabetic, for example. He, uh, he has an eye on her diet. He goes shopping. He knows where to shop, cheap but good. He, uh, he has a very good eye for, for things in garage sales and in 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 in. Uh, say uh, flea markets you know uh, they have a nice apartment with nice things and he has he he just but he has to he can only he helps her in in her in her business 
but he can only help in the afternoon because he has the medication and he is he needs until midday uh, until he is able to, to communicate with people so something that i wanted to ask i have close friends and not so close friends more but i i have people around me that are addicted that have vices their parents they inherited their parents vices and habits and um, some of these friends have a lot of potential they're young and i can see there's good in the heart and mm -hmm. they still they try and you know is there something a friend can do that's not a professional <laughs> I, I know it's a loaded that's, question that's a big one that's a big one look uh what i have seen in my career as a psychotherapist if you have if the if the person is not motivated to seek professional help then so be it i mean you can if somebody feels bad about it and complains you as a as a no, not professional but as a friend who means well you can say you can just suggest yet yeah, perhaps it is time now that you talk to someone but that's actually all you can do because i mean i have seen it uh, time and again if someone is not motivated then he has to go downhill and downhill and downhill and downhill until there is nowhere to go deeper and then we say this person has to go on foot through through the dirt you know hit rock bottom yeah and then when uh, when they really feel everybody falls apart they will perhaps they are not i mean who is not damaged of course everybody has some things you know um but with the with addiction yeah in in my time it was the man drunk a man is not has no depression a man drinks uh, depression a man uh -uh. men drink women drink perhaps also but at home alone uh, but women are more inclined to seek help. Uh, something that was very important to me uh, as a psychotherapist to tell my clients. Uh, I mean, I had it rough and I haven't chosen uh, to have it rough like that. Some people... But... Mm. Uh, 
so I was, I felt entitled to tell people, you still, even if it's rough, even if it's very difficult, you can, every day, you can choose what you will do. Every day you can, you can change your direction if you want to. However, uh, if you just complain or if you decide, yeah, I want to have fun, okay, that's also a decision. You have to make the decision, you know. Uh, and if you, if you feel bad or if you feel, if you actually want to, to, to get rid of your addiction, it's not easy. Then it gets very important that you know, I decide, nobody can decide but myself, but me. I decide what I want to do with my, with me, with myself, with my life. Almost every case I know of my friend that has a vice or that has this addiction, they've inherited from their parents. Mm -hmm. I have friends that are friends with their parents are bad influences on them. Um, mm -hmm. And I've, I grew up now, my, my parents now, they're divorced, unfortunately, but growing up, at least in my formative years, I had structure. I had security. Mm -hmm. I had a mother and a father who never, ever drank, never mm -hmm. smoked. Um, it was a conservative Christian home. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents would tell me that they love me. My father still now. I have friends who've never heard from their father. Son, I, I love you. Son, I'm proud of you. Um, but if my parents, if my role models were drunkards, Addicts, uh, I don't see. Where's the hope? Where's the example? Where's the? It, it's normal to them, and that's where I wish I I had an answer apart from they need motivators to see a professional. I wish there was something. I, I wish I could show them, I, I, but I, I just don't know how. I, I yeah, look, look. If it doesn't, you can't make it click. I know. You know. I know. And I think it shows how important, how important the family is. How you grow up. I mean, uh, I mean, we were, my dad was a communist when he was young. When he was 18, he was a communist. Uh, when he was 40, he said, uh, if you are not a communist with 16, you have no heart. If you are still a communist with 40, you have no brains. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where, which direction that would go. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, but my, and my parents were Protestant, but they were very soon when they were young, they were against the, the church as an institution. So they, uh, they were part of a group of socialist religious people. Uh, and then they left the Protestant church altogether. 
And when they had kids, they decided, oh yeah, we go back and become members of the Protestant church again because we want our kids to belong somewhere. Uh, I don't belong anywhere in the meantime. I belonged in the meantime once I converted to Catholic Church when I was to, uh, in the time of the Pope uh, John uh, twenty twenty three. He was he was uh, uh, he was a uh, uh, he was an exception, a big big exception. I mean, he was. It's a shame that he died after five years. Uh, and and then I decided uh, when I married a divorced man, I said uh, the Catholic Church is from yesterday. I still stayed in a few years, and then suddenly I I I was finished with with that whole uh, with that whole church as institution institution and then it came out that we might have a great 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 grandmother who was jewish and uh, and then and i had uh, some jewish friends and then i decided okay i i'm i'm off bye 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 church and i i left and I told the, the the kids, look, you if you are interested, you can go to the to the to the to the to the lessons, but you don't have to. And I, uh, there was a time I was very much uh, interested in uh, anti-Semitism. I had also a Jewish boyfriend then. But that was after I was divorced. And uh, I mean, I was interested in Jewish uh, history and, uh, and, and culture long before that. I was when I in, in, uh, in high school, when I was 14, I, uh, or 15, I, I, I think I had a, a a big assignment uh, uh, over um, Zionism, and I was the one of the class who read all the documentations uh, of the Nuremberg trial when I was sixteen. The, for those who don't, Nuremberg trial where the Nazis the Nazis were uh, were uh, on, tra uh, on trial, for, trial. Their yeah. for their war crimes. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, uh, and I even read the the all the documentation of uh, that that book, Medizin ohne Menschlichkeit. That is the doctors who made the experiments. With uh, people in concentration camps. That's heavy reading for a fourteen-year-old. Uh, th then I was sixteen, 16. But, and I didn't, I didn't know who to talk to, and I was, I mean, I was in a state. I was quite depressed, but I, I just had because I knew it could have been me. 
and I, I couldn't close my eyes and say it doesn't, doesn't matter. I uh, because for my father and for me, our Jewish ancestry was important. My father even learned Hebrew. And I, I've learned uh, a hundred uh, Yiddish songs. Wow. I was pretty good. And I've, I've, to this day, my sister and I, we can recite the beginning of the Bible in Hebrew. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim et haaretz. Haaretz haita tohu babohu vechoshech al pnei tohum. Baruch Elohim merachefet al pnei hamayim. It's a beautiful language. So you've had this, you, you've had a vast experience with different religions and beliefs. Yep. You were a Catholic at one point, and you've had some exposure to Protestantism, um, to the Jewish faith. What do you make of it all now? Look, I I would say I believe in a spirit in this in the spirit of creation, and I believe that part we have all all even even your addict friends they just don't know it. We have all a part of that spirit of creation inside us. We have all the possibilities to, to, to take part in the creation. We have the possibility, but what we do with it, we have the freedom to deny it. We have the freedom to throw it away. Everybody creates how the world today and tomorrow will look like. We are, uh, we, we are not only here to cons for the conservation, but we are all responsible for what becomes of the world. What do you, what do you make of religious texts, the Bible, scripture? Let's leave institutions alone for now. Is it relevant? Is there worth? Uh, look, f uh, of all I know now is uh, the. I think the the worst mistake is if people think that came directly from 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 up there, you know, because these are historical texts. They come from different times. And under different uh, uh, circumstances, were they written? Um, and you find, as you mentioned, the flood. You find that in uh, the Gilgamesh epos, thousands of different. You cultures. find it even in Central America at the Mayas. But uh, doesn't that give it validity? Uh, that. That is, I think, for me, that is the that is the f most fascinating mystery. For me, 
I, yeah, as I said, I can't see a personalized God. That's, uh, for me, we are all, we have all part of God in us. My experience is different. You're right in saying that the <clears throat> biblical text is, uh, there's, there's a historical context, there's a cultural context. But even within that, cultural and historical context there are things that are so ingrained in us that will never go away there isn't one culture on planet earth that is okay with treachery that sees abuse as a good thing that sees um, the disrespect of their parents as a good thing there are certain things um, that in scripture that are so ingrained in every cult cultures that have never been exposed to Bible Christianity. Let's take the Ten Commandments, for example. I shall not kill, I shall not envy, I shall not steal, honor your mother and your father. No one disagrees with that. No culture disagrees with that. That's true, yeah. And the story leave let's leave dogma and institutions and uh, culture and history alone. The story throughout Scripture from the very beginning in Genesis is the story of a personalized God. Yes. A God that made man in his image to look and to care, that gave him purpose. Things went sideways because of because love demanded free will. And the whole story throughout the Bible is man struggling with those decisions. When I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying consistently, the way I think changes. I think in different channels. My thoughts then impact my speech, the way I talk, the way I treat and see other people. I see other people like myself. I see someone else that has damage, that has hurt, that struggles with different things perhaps than I do. I'm more empathetic. I'm more forgiving. I'm more patient. I work harder. My work ethic increases. The Bible says do everything with all your heart because you have a very short time on earth. It's personalized and the way Everything changes. I think about things differently. I become kinder. I become nicer. I put in more effort. I see more worth. No one can understand what that personalized experience with God is like until they have it themselves. There's, you can't. You cannot articulate it, and there's nothing comparable. There is absolutely nothing comparable. It, it's other-centered. Your focus and your priorities become the other people and I wish that my experiences and how I felt in saying as a teenager this is nonsense how can the God of the Bible demand the destruction of this people group or that people group and then coming back and then finding that that thing that constant like you do with your clients 
that you're always constant, that you're always there, you never give up. That's what I have in the person of Christ mm -hmm. that never gives up, that's always there, that's always welcoming, but always says, hey, do better. Don't do that again. <laughs> don't, do, don't do that consequence. It, I wish I could give that experience to someone in two seconds and they would see things completely differently. You know, when I was your age, I was uh, in the Catholic Church. And I had even uh, that experience in uh, working in a in a in a in a bidonville in the surroundings of of Paris. I've learned the first time real poverty. People, homeless people, homeless families, five hundred people in in in. Uh, we called them igloos made from fiber cement or from from corrugated iron, so half round uh, earthen floor, uh, one tap for five hundred people, one water tap, and I worked there as a volunteer. And uh, I uh, once I was uh, I went to the in the city. In a concert, and I came and I went alone. Normally, we didn't go out alone, we volunteers. And I came home uh, late at night, and I was suddenly I was surrounded by a gang on motorbikes. It was night, it was dark, it was raining, and there were no streetlights. It was just outside it was these people lived in a, in that camp outside and they came closer 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 and they abused me and i have only seen the lights from those motorbikes and then they revved up the motor and then and then i thought so i'm done i will be gang raped and i I won't survive this. And suddenly they disappeared. I say to this day, an angel came. The angel came in form of a objector. Uh, they had a barracks nearby. They also had to work in the in the camp. They had the barracks nearby, and they heard the noise of the of the motorbikes. And one of those young men came out to uh, have, have a look what was going on. And then these guys disappeared. And for me, to this day, I say, an angel came to rescue me. So personalized God or not, there is some spirit out there. If that spirit sees me as a person, I don't know, but for me that was it and that is it and that will be like that until I die. I have been rescued by an angel, like Tobias in the Bible. Um, 
you've done some traveling in your time. Yes. Um, from memory, um, the only country I remember was Iran. Is that correct? Can you tell me a little bit about your your experiences traveling? Oh gosh, I would like to go again. <laughs> <laughs> now I was the first time in Iran. I think it was in ninety five, maybe. Yeah, Chador, black. It was the time of Khomeini. So very, uh, yeah, cover head to toe. Yeah, we had we were a group of people uh, which were friends with a carpet dealer, someone who imported antique Persian carpets to Switzerland. He Hans Rudi, Hans Rudi, Hans Rudi Sieber. His father already had the same business. And uh, the son, he he is a phenomenon. He learns every language very fast. He speaks Turkish. He speaks Farsi, so the language I speak in Persia. Um, his mom was Italian, from Sicily. Sicily. He looks like uh, Iranian, black hair, black eyes. And every time he went uh, to Iran, he let grow a little beard. He looked like a mullah. He had style. He has he has big style. He is he is tall. Uh, he's tall. Uh, he is he is uh, he's very good looking. He then when he went in Iran, he always had the. Uh, a shirt without color, you know, like uh, like they have there, yes, yes. and uh, and black pants, and he looked really like a mullah. It was look, it was really funny, um, and we were a group of perhaps the first time we were in Tehran in Mashhad and then in. Uh, Central Asia. Then, then we went over to Central Asia. So you met this man um, well when he was importing Persian rugs or carpets. Oh, I knew him. I knew his father. Who had that business. Uh, who had that business. And okay. I knew his father because <laughs> his father was the brother from our minister in our village. And I was 16 and the minister in our village uh, made for the 16 year olds he made a camp for skiing in the mountains a few days in the in the winter holidays and uh, the carpet dealer was a good was a ski instructor too and he came uh, to help in the camp and i broke my leg so he, Hansi, the, the father, he took me with the, uh, with the Canadier. Canadier is the, the, stretcher? the, the a stretcher sleigh. sleigh. Mm. 
he took me to the doctor and then he brought me home because he was the only one with a big enough car. He had a Chevrolet because of his business. Yes. And from there, I knew him. Okay. And many, many years later, yeah, and then uh, he was not married then. He, a few years later, he married uh, that uh, woman from Sicily. And then they had two boys. And so I came to know the, the young ones. Okay. That is the, the Hansruedi who took over from his father. And um, so, yeah. As you see, that is an old Afghan rug. Wow, okay. Uh, which you can't buy them anymore. <laughs> wow. Um, then I have, I have an Armenian uh, rug. I have uh, two, three museum pieces in this room. And I have this uh, wall... Uh, hanging thing that comes from Central Asia and must be also about a hundred years old Wow! and is silk stitched on cotton. I had no idea what was surrounding me. <laughs> um, anyway. Yes. So uh, when the, I think that was the first time we, I went with him to Iran, we went to Tehran first and then to Mashhad. Mashhad is the I think one of the holiest cities. He has a golden mosque. They have also the jewels of the last Shah in a vault. We have seen it. You can you can visit. You are speechless. There are that's in a place bigger than that whole house is full of precious stones in every form. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. So, Iran, was that a culture shock to you at the time? Uh, yes, the first time it was, it was creepy in the beginning because you could see in Tehran, you could see these buses with uh, young men, because they were then at war with Iraq, I think. They had a, anyway, and you could see uh, those buses with, uh, with that, uh, uh, Hans would explain to us the verses of the Quran, where okay. the young men who go to war, to jihad, uh, they and when they die, they go directly to paradise, uh -huh. and so on. And uh, it was creepy. And Hans Rudi, he told us, wherever we go, wherever someone looks at us, salam. Every time, salam. Was that peace? Uh, peace. peace. It's just to yeah. Yeah, I was quite overwhelmed the first time. Of course, of course. And then we went to Mashhad, and then Mashhad, it was uh, down with USA. It was big at the hotel, sprayed, you know. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and, and then we went, oh, we went uh, after four days, in, uh, we, we went to Central Asia. We were the first travelers who just 
went for holiday, who crossed the border into Turkmenistan. Before that was the Iron Curtain at the Amudarya. I see. Uh, on the south side is Iran. On the north side is Uzbekistan. The, the, the impressions I had there, it was it was really interesting. And then the second time was two years later, one year later, we went to Tehran and then a bit south to Shiraz. And then from Shiraz to Persepolis. The Persian Persepolis. Yes, the old capital. Yeah. Persepolis uh, is of course in ruins. Yeah. Yes. It was just uh, we know now it was just for representation. It was uh, because there when when uh, Darius yes. uh, was there or the other Persian kings from yes. that uh, from that dynasty? The people from all the ancient world came to pay tribute to them there, and it's it's uh, it's incredible. So it was more of like a symbolic city rather than a functioning. Yeah, it, it I we think we now, think. but perhaps it's not. It it had it had a very high symbolic. Word because yes. it was incredibly big, incredibly impressive, you know, like these these uh, these figures at the gates, where had a lion with the wings, with the winged, uh, the body of a lion yes. with the wings, and then a human head, wow. and. Uh, some headgear. <laughs> I've, I've seen the, I've seen you, the images. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, it's incredible. So that that's still there. It's still there. Wow. In, in ruins. It's in ruins, but you can see it. Okay. Now your father loved history, and you love history. What was that like? See, like seeing, even though it was in ruins, and just knowing thousands of years ago who may have walked past these. In, was that overwhelming? I get overwhelmed just thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, you who goes to Persepolis? Who can go to Persepolis? I mean, it's such a... It's too big to 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 take in. I, I think people don't... It's too big to take in. And then you have then a little bit further north are tombs in the rock face from Darius, there was more than one. There are three, four, four tombs in in the rock face. Uh, from those Xerxes, Xerxes and Darius, the first and the, the, the first, and then, yes. then the uh, not, not how many there were. Yes, <laughs> but of course they have been. Robbed. Yeah, of course. But I mean, they are enormous. Also, they, they wow. are just in the rock face, and it's far away from every modern city or place. 
it's just in the rock face in a valley that is was just green it's high it's the it's a tableland it's not uh it's it's, it's about on a thousand meters uh, over sea level yes. in an empty country ha <laughs> i get goosebumps just thinking about it i don't think people actually realize how urban these ancient cities and cultures were i think people think you know they were more simple I mean, we, we've talked about Nineveh, Persepolis, Babylon. The, these were magnificent cities. I mean, they say on the walls of Babylon you could have chariot races. Like and, it, it, <laughs> massive urban cities. Uh, it's not long ago uh, there was a documentary about Nineveh, what they found. They found parallels of, to the story of uh, Jonah. Oh, they really? Yeah. Wow. And the, I mean, Nineveh must have been an absolutely sophisticated, modern city. Plumbing. Yeah, yeah, everything. yeah. Yeah. It. Um, <laughs> I love it when 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 secular history um, matches up with biblical history, and we find uh, it's fascinating. And that ancient cultures, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Akkadians. No, I mean, being in Persepolis, that was really a, an absolute highlight. Man. But I have to say also Central Asia. For me, it was even uh, Isfahan is half of the world, said the old Iranians. Isfahan is the half of the world was the most important city in old Persia. And you don't, you do, you do barely know, know the name. I don't know the name at all. Spell it for me. Uh, Isfahan. Isfahan. Or Isfahan sometimes. Isfahan. No, maybe not. Tell me about it. Uh, it's on a river. The river is called Zenderud. Uh it is it was for many generations the place where the shah the old shahs the old old, old dynasties in say 15th century 16th century 17th century the shah lived resided the persian shah um it has that bridge over the sender route it has the most absolutely beautiful mosques and it has the Maidan. The Maidan is a, a very big place, open place in the middle of the city where and on the one side is a Shah Pala, uh, the summer palace of the Shah. And he could watch from his palace when they played polo. You know that polo? On horseback. Yeah. Mm. Polo was uh, was played in, in old Iran. I can believe that because of their horsemanship. And they, they and I mean, the, that, uh, that place is so big. I can't tell you the exact measures, but it's, I mean, it's, it's just immense. And then 
And then the, the, the biggest mosque is there. And beautiful, you know, with those, with those mosaic uh, domes, with these turquoise colors and with these intricate forms because they are not allowed to, uh, the Muslim is not allowed to uh, make images of uh, humans. So what do they do? They make ornaments with flowers and they make ornaments with Arabic with, with the, the Arabic letters, with, with the verses of the Quran. And this is so incredibly beautiful. Who were the ancient peoples that live in Uzbekistan? What was that nation called? Um, I, I, I can only tell you Uzbekistan. <laughs> okay. The Uzbeks are uh, an ethnic. It's, it's a people. Uh, Turkmen, so they are practically tribes, have been tribes. Okay. Uzbeks, Turkmen, um, and then Azeri in Azerbaijan. Uh, they are actually all these tribes okay. have been, have yes. been, yes. Yes. and then the Soviets came, and then they had to, they had yes, to grow uh, cotton. And nothing else, and uh, they had to destroy the the environment and use all the water from the holy river Amudarya. Amudarya was the 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 big river there, and it's all gone. It's all all dirty. It's the 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 soil is oversalted now because they used way too much water. Yeah, nothing pains me more when conflict destroys history like that when when isis was in iraq and syria and they would uh, destroy all these old statues and in museums <sighs> or that 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 now nah, if that if i ever felt righteous indignation they were really angry they, they went in they went into museums yes and they destroyed yes in i mean i would so have loved to go to baghdad Baghdad, that is history, Hergot, Baghdad, uh, uh, the, and the, Meso, the old Mesopotamia. You can't travel there anymore. Yeah. That ancient kingdom I was telling you about, Elam, the Elamites, they were uh -huh. contemporaries of... I, I, I remember, yeah. We, yeah. Mm, they Elam. were contemporaries of the Babylonians and... When Elamite, okay, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. When the Syrians, when they rebelled with Babylon against Assyria, and when Assyria came and wiped them out, absolutely gruesome story. <coughs> he had their head general carry the head of the Elamite king around his neck all the way back to Nineveh, and he had that head put up on his bedroom wall and slept with that king's wife. They with the head of they barbarians, gosh, oh, oh, the psychological but, aspect. That but has. you know, there is uh, it's like in I mean, in in uh, in, in the Balkan states, 
like Yugoslavia, which doesn't exist anymore. Now it's Serbia, it's etc., uh, etc., et Bosnia, Croatia, and so um, there is a book from Ivo Andrić. He is a Nobel Prize. Uh, he was he got the Nobel Prize for that book, uh, the Bridge Over the Drina, and the that Bridge Over Over the Drina, and. Uh, that is the story of that um, of that land between Turkey and the Mediterranean, uh, where I mean the Turks were a long time in the Balkans, and they came to Vienna until Vienna, um, and they occupied big parts of Hungary. Uh, in the 17th or so century, and before they were, uh, they they occupied uh, big parts of the Balkans. What is it about the Balkans that make them so violent? Uh, <laughs> look, it is. I don't know the whole story, but I would say it is uh, mountainous, wild country. To this day, with a lot of forests, but uh, of course not in the in the places uh, towards the Mediterranean, but in the hinterland, uh, it's very backwards in the country in in the back country, still to this, to this day. Yeah, it has uh, the mountains are steep, the winters are cold. It has to this day uh, bears and wolves. In the in the forests, um, it has yeah. It's a primitive. It's the the back country is primitive and harsh to live in. It's hard people. Yeah, hard people. That whole history of the fall of former Yugoslavia mm -hmm. and the violence that came out of it, and even before the fall of Yugoslavia. When the Germans had their concentration camps, and we're all aware of how brutal that was, Yugoslavia had their own um, concentration camps, and there were reports from German officers of how disgusted they were with, with the Yugoslavians and how they treated the people there in their death camps. And it's a history that's not very well known, and it's something I'd really like to study and um speak to someone who knows more than myself. Uh, look, uh, be careful. Uh, I guess, you know, you know, the German military, as long as they were not SS, they might well have been disgusted. But uh, as soon as they were SS, uh, they, uh, they certainly were not disgusted. They yes. found that uh, very yes. interesting and, oh, yeah, we should do that too. Now, you know. I, I'm not trying to um, make the, the Nazis more, uh, or the atrocities more human or, or try and downplay them, but rather address that the Yugoslavians in World War II and their concentration camps were just on par with their brutality. And that whole area, the Balkans, for some reason, when, there is, when there's instability and when there's warfare, they just seem to be a very... Look, they have... Ustasha, that was their secret police, yeah. the Ustasha, mm. and they were fascist. Mm. 
They were fascists uh, of the first hour. They didn't need the Germans to teach them. They were fascists or or they were the the victims of the of fascists. Uh, that was and then after that came came the communists, <laughs> then came Tito, then came the dictators. And that was uh, was just as well. In my feelings and I, I think I'm not alone. For us, other Europeans, the Balkans are not Europe. Okay. Uh, I mean, of course they are yeah, Europe, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. but they are not. Cons they just the feeling they they are not like us. <laughs> just the the mentality and the, yes, the, the yeah yeah. I understand perfectly what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's. Um, but uh, you have to you have to know they had a long time Turkish occupation. They and they are uh, the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and before the Ottomans, there were others. I mean, it was all these these borders were always uh, always uh, very fluid. A problem fluid, yes. yeah. <laughs> In your professional career, are there any um, achievements or success, whether it be with clients or patients, that you're very proud of? <clears throat> and I'm going to ask about failures or mistakes as well. I, I, I would say I'm very sad about people and it was not many, and they waited until I was in holidays. People who killed themselves. There were two. Uh, I had them both as my patients, and when I worked in hospital, and they nicely waited until I was in holidays, and. Something, somebody else was responsible for them. And then they killed themselves. One went under the train. Boat, boat went under the train. Yeah. And they, it was really interesting because they didn't want to do that to me. So they waited until I was away. And um, I know I had a reputation to do very well with very difficult people. <laughs> so when I uh, opened my own practice, my private practice in Zurich, in the city, my colleagues sent me to people they couldn't handle. And for the most part, I could handle them quite well. Um, if you ask me, am I especially proud of cases, I was... For me, that was never the question, being proud. Oh, 
I know I'm I know that I I'm I'm a good therapist. And that's it. Uh, it's not uh it's not a question of hey uh, look look at me i i know it i was going to rewrite the question instead of saying proud of just experiencing success because i i would have thought gives off the wrong it's the wrong way to ask yeah, the question yeah yeah i mean i was in many cases successful where my colleagues wouldn't touch the case I had, and I used to say, and I say it again, that is my credo. I love people. And it happened perhaps twice in my career that I couldn't find a way to love a person. And uh, that was when I couldn't succeed. So some people come in and they are first arrogant and they say, yeah, no, I, meh, and you don't understand me and blah, blah. And, <clears throat> and you just stay put and you listen to that and you, you say, yeah. I understand that you think like that, and I, I hear you. So what do we do now? And I always told people very early, you are the person who knows your problems best. I can't tell you what to do. You can take me with you. I can, I can come with you. I can make a, uh, the way with you. I can look from the outside and perhaps I have something. I see something you can't see because you are inside your story. And I'm outside. But I can't give you the recipe to success. I can only help you find the way. We can go the way together to a certain point. And uh, for me, that is what every psychotherapist should be aware of. We are not made to solve problems of other people because we never know them well enough. And we don't know their possibilities, their strengths. We, we can have a hunch. We can try to open up their, their uh, field of vision if you want to. But we can't and we never should promise to solve the problem for the patient. We can't. And these perhaps two people, I couldn't find a way 
to to love them somehow. I couldn't treat them. Was that because of their unwillingness to participate in the dialogue in the sessions, or was it their personalities? Uh, the, one I remember. One uh, one was an alcoholic and a very very bad alcoholic and arrogant as you know if you accept people sooner or later they open up if they feel accepted this woman never opened up and she was and she had not that much motivation and I couldn't, uh, I mean, she, she, she made, f in, in the good case, she made fun of me. Then, then she didn't come. She came late and, and, uh, or she, she, she just, she just, uh, yeah. And I asked myself, why does she come? Because normally you feel people are, suffering you feel their suffering even if they are arrogant you feel their suffering and this woman i think this woman she came only to it was a pastime and it was for her uh, a possibility to to pay back to the society what 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 does she want uh, this doctor uh, they, they she she doesn't know anything and anyway <laughs> they do what I want you know that sort of I mean there are some people out there they are just bad they are just bad they, it exists I I don't like to say it but it was like that and it it, it happened perhaps twice in my professional life. What about a success story? I mean, yeah, success stories. I I would say I have more than one success story, but the most impressive is yes. perhaps young woman in therapy for years with some someone else. I just opened I wanted to open my practice and because I didn't know does it pay from the beginning? I took a part-time job in a <clears throat> in a yeah it wasn't a hospital it was like yeah a, a place where they had people for a few weeks people who needed a bit more support and a, yeah a bit of time time out and so and it was run by a psychotherapist, psychologist, psychotherapist, not by a doctor. He wanted a doctor because there were people who needed medication. And <laughs> I took on the treatment of a young woman. The, 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 the boss couldn't handle her. He was scared. And he thought she will kill herself sooner or later anyway. 
and uh, she was uh, yeah she had tendency to hurt herself, run with the head against the wall. Uh, she hurt her wrist because she she banged in the in the wall with the, with the, with her fists and she also she had time she cut herself. Uh, she often uh, talked about suicide. She had been in psychiatric hospitals for short times, more than once. She was, she had something very aggressive and violent. Not in, she was quite a, uh, she had good manners, but you felt that, you felt that pressure, that, that, that violence in her. And then I took her on and then I, uh, soon I gave up that job because my practice was full almost from the beginning. And then that young woman came, uh, wanted to stay with me. And uh, it turned out she had been sexually abused by a friend of her father. And she tried to, to tell her mom, but her mom was a hysterical woman uh, who had no self-esteem and who was helpless and her father was a typical mat macho italian uh, garagist <laughs> uh, and to him she couldn't talk anyway because it was his friend who had done it and her mom had a breakdown and uh, nobody wanted to hear of it and it got worse and worse and worse. And, uh, and then she hated her mom for that. I mean, it, then these, these things go very fast out of hand because then she hated her father because he was a macho and, and a, a violent man. He was very loud speaking. Uh, she hated her mom because her mom wasn't a mom to her. She played helpless and 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 uh, she uh, cowered uh, when the father became loud and so on and on and on. And um, and yeah, also my uh, I for me it was very difficult to deal with that hatred. And it was not always so intense, but sometimes suddenly it came up. And then I knew she will perhaps kill herself. And she then once she, she was the only one, I gave my private phone number. And I said, you can call me if you need. And she never did. So she that didn't, didn't use it. And once I said, look, uh, you think so, uh, so uh, much of killing yourself now, and you talk about it. And I feel you are very close, but you don't want to go in psychiatric hospital. I know that. We talked a lot about it. And I said, look, 
I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't hinder you to do that. If you you are free to do it, if you want to. But don't you think it would be a shame for all the work we did together till now? It was after years of the, perhaps three, four years of therapy. I just gave her that in the book. She didn't kill herself. She didn't even hurt herself. But that hatred against her mom was so overwhelming that I thought in the Middle Ages, I would have thought that girl is possessed. What did I do? <laughs> that was the craziest thing I did in my life. And I'm now proud of that, that I had the, the courage to overstep everything I had learned. I called Daniel. Daniel in Australia. And Daniel had worked with Steve Richards, who did uh, what kinetics. He speaks, he, he has original or, or uh, Aboriginal background, and he speaks with the spirits. And Daniel assisted him. Daniel has a very strong, I mean, he is perhaps more, uh, much more spiritual than I am. He is, uh, he is amazing. He worked also with an Armenian healer when he was just a, an apprentice. And I told him the story and I said, look, if you, you work with Steve Richards, can he look in that case? Independent of time and place, he works then with surrogat with surrogates, and he worked with the surrogate, and Daniel wrote protocol. And um, so he, he brought the surrogate, surrogate person in trance, and then he talked about, he, he had to know name, uh, date of birth, and the uh, and, uh, uh, address of the person, of the patient. My, my patient and then what the result from that consultation was something Steve Richards said I've never had that uh, such a result and I thought uh, <clears throat> what do I do with that I had before I had asked um my patient, if she was fine with that. And she said yes. Then what came out uh, that she had been a dragon who had been uh, enslaved by another dragon. And until she, the dragon, had killed uh, the person who had enslaved her and abused her. And then Daniel told me that. Then I thought, okay, I have, because I'm a psychotherapist, I'm always completely honest and open. 
I, I told my patient the story. And then she said, yes, yes, that's it. That's how I feel. That's how I feel. I'm a monster. I feel I'm a monster. And I'm, I'm, I'm a killer. So he, Steve Richards, had found out what went on in her inner self and why she, she, and then suddenly in, in the, the following weeks, he, she said, you know what? Finally, someone understood how I feel and could, could put that in, in words. And I understand now I don't have to hate my mom. My mom can't help it. She is who she is. And that hatred was gone. And that was the craziest thing I did. And if the the medical board would have known what I had done, they would have they would have thrown me out. But I'm I'm convinced, even if I don't work like that. I don't work with uh, with with uh, with people who 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 uh, practice uh, these things uh, because I'm not the person to work with that. But this one time I did it was an absolute success, and then I could later uh, say half a year later I knew that I would emigrate. And I had to to find another therapist for that uh, woman, for that young woman. And I could do that with with uh, peace of mind, because I knew she was not anymore suicidal. She, every decent therapist could handle her. That is the craziest thing I've ever did, and the craziest story. There, I'm proud of my courage. Wow. Did you ever share that with any other colleagues? No. no. So and now I, so slowly, slowly, I begin to think I would like to know something from you. <laughs> I'm an open book. What is it? What What is your you You talk about farm. You, what is your background? My, I grew up on a farm. My father was a farmer. Uh huh. Um, in South Africa, I mm -hmm. grew up on a farm, cattle and crop. We had horses. Mm -hmm. um, we immigrated to Australia when I was six. Uh huh. Our future wasn't in South Africa. My father would sleep with a, a handgun next to his bed. We had rifles. We were in an enclosed. We had the school fences, you see, with the spikes we had around our, our yard and our house. Yeah. My mother, um, she would go shopping with a revolver in a handbag, the thirty eight Special. Um, so my parents decided we moved to Australia. So I moved to Australia and grew up on a farm here as well. My father's farm. I grew up hunting rabbits and foxes and and shooting. And all. I'd come home as a 
from a school as a 12 year old i'd hop on the quad bike take my old 104 year old 114 year old now lee enfield 303 rifle and i'd i'd go down and try and find something to <laughs> crazy <laughs> it's crazy now that i've all these things my father trusted me with as a child i was like oh, man but i appreciated it yeah yeah and um to finish this, what's the last bit of advice you can give me for a young man entering marriage? I don't know you well enough to say something really substantial. Yes. And I don't know uh, your wife at yes. all. Yes. Uh, in general, I think you both should never try to be someone you are not. Not even when you think, ah, that's for love that I do it. You know, to, to please the other even better or whatever. Because I think stay true to yourself and try not to when you have a grudge try to find out is it is it me is it my understanding is it a misunderstanding from one side or the other don't don't ask who is guilty guilt is and the feeling of guilt or pointing the finger at the other it's your fault that is so bad and that's so rubbish just be true to yourself and 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 be and keep the peace be patient i think a lot in a lot of marriages there is not unconditional love i love you because because you 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 are and you give and you do that's that's a that's business that's not that's not really unconditional love you think love is a choice as much as a feeling <sighs> yes 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 and i can remember once a very nice she was a doctor about uh, she could have been my my daughter and she had feelings for another man she had discovered to have feelings for another man but for her husband and she told me that and she told me she, she felt so guilty so guilty so guilty and then i said look you can't help it, but you can. You have the choice to to give in to that feeling, or to acknowledge what it is. Yes, uh, I mean we we are like that. We see someone. We have perhaps uh, uh, we talk with uh, people. We 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 can have feelings for people who are not our partner. But love 
in that case becomes a choice. She was, God, she was so happy that I told her that. That then she didn't, she, she could accept to have feelings uh, without punishing herself with the, oh, I feel guilty, I feel guilty. Uh, she decided, of course, she decided to stay with her husband and to, to not to have to have uh, stories with other people. Uh, and I told her, yeah, that's the moment when perhaps you don't feel ecstatic. But why did my parents stay together? I mean, my parents were married 60 years till my father died. And it was not always smooth sailing, but they both had made the choice and there nobody needed to 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 uh, say eh, eh. they for them it was absolutely clear also in difficult times uh, we have chosen each other. So for me love is a choice. Yeah. I'm glad you said so. Yeah. Yeah, okay. in 70 years, more than 70, 77 years, it's a long life. <laughs> That's why I wanted to talk to you. 